Amen. If you have your Bible tonight, and I hope that you do, I'd ask that you find the book of 2 Timothy tonight. As you know, we finished the Minor Prophets last week, and I really had every intention of going to 1 Kings and looking where we left off in the life of King David. I thought that all the way up until Wednesday, but I just couldn't get any peace about it. And I even said that, I think, at Wednesday night Bible study. And Thursday, as I really tried to get along with the Lord and was doing some other things, and, and uh, the Lord said Second Timothy. And Second Timothy is a book that, if you were going to write your last will and testimony, your will, last will and testament, if you had a group of people that you wanted to tell something and you knew your time was short, that is this letter. Apostle Paul is sitting in prison knowing that even if he does get out, he is not going to probably live very long. Most likely he was executed very shortly after writing this letter. He was in prison the first time and it was pretty cozy for prison standards. People could visit him and he was more under house arrest. But this time, after the great persecution of the Roman Empire for the city of Rome burning and the persecution of Christians, it finally has caught up. And Paul is in a terrible, terrible situation. I have tonight two pictures of what many Bible scholars believe is the prison that Paul was in. It's most likely just a little basement. And in this little area, there would have been 30 prisoners thrown down through a little hole. You can go to the next one if you don't care. And that would have been the looks of it. A cellar with no way out. You can just imagine the smell and the filthiness and the darkness and all that would have been going on. And Paul sits here and realizing, I need to tell Timothy something that God has inspired me to write. Timothy was the young preacher that followed the Apostle Paul. He was the one that he had left as the pastor at the church at Ephesus. Paul had been the pastor, and Timothy had been the pastor at Ephesus for about eight years at this point. And we don't know for sure what was going on, but through the reading of this letter, Paul is constantly encouraging Timothy, don't give up, don't quit, don't compromise. And so most Bible scholars believe that most likely Timothy, being the, lead, the pastor of this church for eight years, was probably starting to be wore down. He was probably starting to struggle with the, the, the dealing with people and the frustrations of ministry and all that comes with that. And Paul realized something, that the gospel ministry and the church of Jesus Christ is bigger than one man. That is why so many churches, when they are founded by a a man or a ministry, when that ministry dies, the ministry folds or it begins to go down because it was personality driven. And Paul realized that this could not happen. We know that because if you read the book of Revelation and you want to flip there with me in chapter 2, the church at Ephesus is mentioned. It is the church that had left its first love. And so whether it would have been 20 years later or 25 years later, we do not know for sure, but this church struggled. It had left its first love. And this morning as I was preaching on it's Jesus or nothing and Him being everything and all of the other stuff starting to fade away, it made a lot more sense as I began to talk about this sermon tonight. 
Because if you want to see a future where God continues to bless this church, I want you to look around tonight and realize that you are the ones that are going to have to make the decision that we're not going to grow weary. We're not going to quit. We're not going to give up. We are going to understand that this is bigger than us. It's bigger than one person. It's bigger than one name. It is about Jesus Christ and making a difference in the lives of lost and dying people. And so as we go through this book, I want you to hear the significance of it. Paul is writing his last letter. He is writing a letter knowing that most everyone has abandoned him. He'll talk about that later on. He is a man who has struggled. He is a man who has suffered so much. And as he's looking back on his life and he's getting ready to meet the Lord, he realizes, all I've done for people, here I sit. I've not done anything other than follow Jesus, love Jesus, serve Jesus, and here I sit. Now most of us, if we were writing this letter, it would be full of complaints and gripes and how unfair things are. But Paul realized something. Whether he was freed or whether he lost his life, that he won. His life wasn't about him. It was about what Jesus had done for him. And all he wanted from reading his writings are what? To finish well. I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you would flip over there with me. All that Paul had been through. All that Paul had suffered. Starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measures. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the seas, in perils among the false brethren, in weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Paul says, This has been the track record of my ministry. But listen to what he says. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation. Friends, Paul said, I love the church. Jesus Christ. He said all of this has been about the good news of Jesus. Watching believers come together to serve the Lord 
and worship the Lord. I ask myself, why did God use Paul in such an amazing way? One, because it was the purposes of God, but the love that Paul had for the local church. You say, Jake, what is it going to take for God to use this place? It's going to take a few people who love the local church, who believe that the local church has a purpose. It has a value. It is unlike any other organization, any other organism in the world. It's not a club. It's not a a gathering. It is the people of God working together to accomplish the mission of God. You say, well, Jake, I, I don't know if I would say I love it that much. Then look up here. Don't expect God to bless. Don't expect God to do amazing and great things if you don't love Him and His bride. I can tell you the only people I have ever struggled to forgive in my life are not people who have hurt me, but who have hurt the woman that I am married to. Why? Because she is my bride. And the Bible tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. Husbands, if someone hurting your Bahama mama doesn't upset you, you got problems. If you don't love your wife enough to defend her like the Bible says and to protect her and to provide for her, there is something wrong. But I can promise you the way Jesus loves His church is perfect. It is a love that is jealous. It is a love that is passionate. It is a love that cares about you. You say, what do you mean by that? Jesus doesn't love the building. He loves you. The temple of the Holy Spirit. And so if you would pray with me tonight, and we're going to jump right in. You say, well, goodness gracious, I thought that was the whole sermon. You got a 20-minute sermon this morning. You're probably not going to get so lucky tonight. And God's people said, amen. All right. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the wonderful privilege to be here tonight. And Lord, I thank you for this group of men and women, children. Lord, I thank you for the youth and the workers that are out there tonight. Lord, I, I know this is not the normal. This is an abnormal place. God, I pray tonight that you would work in the people that are here tonight in a mighty way. Show them how you love them. Show you how you're using them. And Lord, how you want to work through them in a great and mightier way going forward. Lord, forgive me of anything in my heart or life that would grieve your spirit, that would quench your spirit, Lord, tonight in this place. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you're taking notes tonight, I want you to see that God has a purpose and a plan for our lives. God has a purpose and a plan for our lives. Look in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul starts out by saying, the reason I'm doing what I'm doing is not because I went seeking the Lord. I didn't go looking for a relationship with Him. We know that Paul was persecuting the church. In Acts chapter 9, we see that God's plan for Paul's life was evident. 
Starting in verse 1, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters for him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, any followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I want you to stop there for a second because what you and I miss in this is the cruelty of it. Right? We understand in, in a world uh, of, of bitterness and fighting and, and struggle that usually even in battle you see men fighting men, right? But women and children are usually left out and when they are harmed it's collateral damage unless you are a war criminal. But what we see from Paul is he didn't care. He didn't care if you're a woman. He didn't care if you're a man. If you were against the things of Israel, he wanted you stopped. If you were a follower of Jesus, it didn't matter if it was a husband, a wife, a mother. You think about this in that sense of how many moms he would have drugged out of a home with screaming and crying children. Think of the Holocaust of of Nazi Germany and the mothers and children who were separate and took apart, right? A a father can leave a home and moms are still there to care for them and protect them and take care of them, but if they're both gone, just imagine the situation that is unfolding here. He goes on and says that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Don't forget that when Satan and the things of this world persecute you, you are not the enemy. The Lord is. He is not able to attack the Lord. He is not able to affect the Lord. But He is able to affect those that the Lord loves. That the Lord cares about. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembled and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into a city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now most of us, if we had an experience like this, we would want the Lord to go ahead and tell us. But He waits. He sits in darkness for three days. No one knows exactly why that was happening, but can you imagine the helplessness of that? You have gone from killing believers, taking them to prison, chasing down women and men, and now you sit helpless, unable to defend yourself, unable to provide for yourself. And we know that when the messengers are told that they are to go and find Him, they didn't want to go either. Why? Because of the situation and what He had done. Friends, I believe it was because When you lose something and God restores it, oh, how thankful we are for it. Why is it that Jesus continually healed the sick and healed the blind and drove out the demon possessed? Because why? When a life is changed, God gets the glory. 
When you and I experience the power of God in our life, it should cause us to love Him more, serve Him more. Most of us, if we're honest, have been so believers for such a long time that we have kind of rode the blessings of God and there's not a sense of desperation. But friends, when the doctor tells you something you don't want to hear, when your marriage goes through something you didn't want to go through, when you lose someone you didn't want to lose, when you're persecuted by someone that you didn't expect to be persecuted, in those moments, in those times of desperation, and it draws us back to God, it is because why? When something you were relying on is taken from you, it causes you to realize the blessing that you had. And my great challenge to this church tonight is do not let God take from you whatever it is you are relying on other than Him. Don't make God take us through the valley to teach us to return to our first love. Tonight, if this group of people will commit that, Lord, we're going to love You with all that we have, we're going to seek Your face. We're going to follow after Your Word. Let us serve Him through the abundance, not have to seek Him in desperation. Second thing I want to show you from this passage of Scripture is, not only does God have a purpose and plan for your life, He has a purpose for you to accomplish in ministry. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6, He's writing to Timothy and he says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially to those who believe. These things command and teach. He says you and I are serving knowing that we are serving God on a promise. We are a child of God knowing that we have been promised eternal life. And when we share the gospel with those that don't know the Lord, then they can inherit the promise of eternal life. When we sit beside someone who has lost a loved one, we can encourage them with the promise of life. That death is not the end. For those of us that know Him, we will see them again. For those who are struggling with depression and discouragement and sickness and pain and, and the world has nothing to offer them, we can come alongside them with the promise of life and life more abundant. We have these words. We have this mission. But yet we so often forget that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the we are agents that get to be a part of giving people the message of you are dead in your sins and trespasses, but through the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God, you can be made alive. You can have hope. Whatever dry bones are in your life, whether it's a marriage, whether it's your family, whether it's spiritual, God can breathe life into it. Just like we see in the book of Genesis. When He made man and then He 
breathed life into him. Don't think that you are just standing up against the evils of this world, and we should. Don't think that you are always just fighting a spiritual battle against liberals who are trying to destroy everything. No. You are bringing a message of life to a dead world. You are bringing a message of hope to those who have none. You are bringing a message of all things can be made new in a world that only knows death. Friends, if all you ever do is fight against the evils of this world, you will miss the calling God has for your life. You need to be reminded that the only thing that pushes back the darkness is the light. That's why Jesus says we're a city on a hill. That's why Jesus tells us that the gates of hell shall not prevail. We have that mission if we will believe it. Second thing I want to show you tonight is not only does God have a purpose for our lives, God brings people into our lives for their benefit and ours. God brings people into our lives for their benefit and ours. He goes on in verse 3 and says, I thank God, time of thanksgiving, whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded it is in you also. Paul starts out by saying, you know what, I might not have served God the right way, but I was doing it because I thought it was right. He said, my family have always tried to love God and serve Him even if we were misguided. Paul doesn't make an excuse for that in saying that he was right or that he could earn the love of God. Because friends, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, there's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is through the grace and mercy of God. But he goes on and says, And without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. I can tell you over the last 12 years, there are a lot of things that I regret as a pastor. I regret losing my temper. I regret decisions that I have made. I regret jokes that I have made. I have made a list of stupid things over the years that if I could go back and change, I would. But there is one thing that I would not change, and that is praying for you every day. Some days I didn't want to. Some days when I got to your names, I thought I'd skip you. But I want you to see what Paul says here. Greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears. Now that is a strange thing. You would think Paul would be saying, I want you to pray for me because I'm in prison. I am getting ready to die for my faith. But he says, no, Timothy, I'm worried about you. Apparently, Timothy had had a hard way to go. We don't know what it was about. We don't know what he had meant through. But what we see here is what Christian love looks like. Christian love is when even if you're in the middle of the storm, you don't forget about the others that are going through a storm as well. 
Well, I, I would pray for them, but we've just got so much going on. Or we would, go to the, we would go and be there for them during their time of need, but we've just got so much going on. No, Paul says, I weep, I pray for you, I know what you're going through. And friends, if this church wants to be a church that God can use, this better be the prayer life that we have. We don't just sit across the aisle from someone on a Sunday morning and a Sunday night. We don't just eat fellowship meals with them on Wednesday night. No, we are praying for them. We care about them. We care about what they're going through. We care about the struggles that we are, they are having. We care about when they hurt. The Bible tells us to weep with those who weep and to celebrate with those who rejoice. When that becomes the heart of a local church, when that becomes the heart of a pastor, when that becomes the heart of a deacon toward his families, in that moment, I promise you one thing, God has big things in store for you. You say, why is that, Jake? Because the world does not care. The world will use you for whatever they can get out of you and they will throw you to the side. It is why one of the biggest prayers that I have is that my daughters will listen to the Word of God when they are old enough to date. That they will not believe the lies of Satan or whatever dumb hairy leg decides to take them out of date that they will know their worth and their value and the sacredness of what God has given them and the, the beautifulness of how God has created them and what purpose He has created them and their future husband for because the world will use them and throw them aside with no remorse. That is not how the church is to be. We are to be a family that struggles together, that works together, that even if we must fight together, even if we must serve together, we must recognize that we belong to the same master. We fight on the same team. We belong to the same family. And if we don't care about each other, no one else will. If we don't love each other like Jesus loves us, the world will not. You say, well, Jake, that's kind of depressing. You didn't read ahead. That I may be filled with joy. You say, how could me thinking about someone else's tears bring me joy? Now, this is my favorite part. And I read it from somewhere else. Paul believed that when he prayed, God would work. Now, he might not take away all the problems that Timothy had, but he would be faithful to meet the need that Timothy had. The more I thought about that, the more happy I got. Not happy enough to jump because I'm telling you, these pants are way too tight, all right? And I mean that. But when you pray for someone, do you believe that God is going to hear from heaven and work? You say, well, Jake, I've prayed and people haven't been healed, but did they know the Lord? Did He give them what they needed? Did He carry them through the storm? Did He walk with them and talk with them and provide for them? Friends, that's how you must pray. That's how you must petition the throne. That's why we fast and pray. Believing that while we might never understand it, while we might not ever see it in our own life, that God will be faithful to His promises. And Paul says, that fills me with joy. How much this for another thought. Paul brought great joy from the Lord for praying for other people. 
I believe the reason that so many Christians are miserable to be around and cannot say a kind word about anyone is because they don't pray for them. They don't really pray for them. I can promise you after the last 12 years, 300 and probably 40 some days a year, 3,000 plus times praying for you, there's been a few nights when I started praying for you that I wasn't really happy to be praying for you. But by the time I got done with it, that was all gone. Why? Because there's just something about when you recognize that if I'm going to go to the throne, I need to know something. I'm not leaving the throne the same way I got there. <laughs> That's all right. You'll think about that later. A person who is spending time with the Lord, I mean a real prayer life, real Bible study, really seeking the Lord's face, does not leave that time the same way they went in there. That's all right. That's all right. I'm right. You're wrong. Just like a person who comes to a church to worship the Lord and really worships Him in spirit and truth doesn't leave the same way they came. You know, I know that it ain't the sermons. I listen to the sermons and I think, oh, it's not the music. I listen to the music and I like it. But it is because God is a life-changing God. If you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. If you seek Him with all of your heart, you will find Him. The reason worship is no good, the reason church is no good, the reason Sunday school is dead, the reason that our, our volunteers don't want to volunteer, it's got nothing to do with this. It's got everything to do with this. There's a problem with me and the Lord. He goes on in the same passage of Scripture and says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwells first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Paul said, I'm just encouraged by what God is doing in your life. And fringe, that ought to be you. Many of you have been in this church longer than I have been alive. My parents have been alive. And you can remember the people who have come through here and what God has done. Now you can remember the ones that have left, the ones that went astray, the ones that did this. But if you want to be encouraged by God, look at what He's doing in the lives of people. You want to be encouraged tonight? When I'm done preaching, you just walk out there and listen to all the laughter in that gymnasium tonight. Here in a few weeks when the kids' ministry starts back up on Sunday night, you just leave here and you walk down that hallway and listen to the joy that is going on. How God is at work. How lives are being changed. If you want to be encouraged, watch what God is doing in the lives of others. We're going to skip a bunch of verses because I'm out of time. Third and final thing tonight, if you don't care, comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1. God prepares everything so that we can move forward for His glory. He has a purpose and a plan for your life. He puts the people in your life. And then He prepares it all for what comes next. Look at verse 6. Therefore. Therefore is there to connect what was just said to what is going to be said. Paul says, I've said all this, and now because of this, this is what I have to tell you. 
Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He tells him right there, God's done all of this in your life. I know He's done this in your life. I've watched Him doing this in your life. Now, what are you going to do with it? And friends, tonight we can sit here and we can think about the goodness of God, what He's done for us, how He's been faithful to us, how He's provided for us, how other people have encouraged us, how other people have prayed for us, how God has opened up the windows and blessed us. And friends, if that's as far as it goes, we've wasted it. He says, I wrote all of this because I want you to know that God has something for you. He says, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God. That word for stirring is the Spirit of God at work in your life. It has the same understanding of when the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. You don't stir up in you what God has given you. He does when you say, yes, Lord. He does when you say, I'm going to repent of my sins. I'm not going to hide them. I'm not going to cover them up. God, here I am, an open book. I did this a few months ago and it worked. Here in the beginning of August, I'm getting ready to be the first and second grade Sunday school teacher. You say, why? No one else wants to do it. Right now. For other reasons. I did that with a three and four year old class for a while and then God began to deal with someone's heart and said, that's for me. So I'm telling you tonight, I'm going to do it and if you try to take it from me, I'm going to kick you in the shin, All right, But you need to be praying. Maybe that should be me. Why? Because the Spirit should be working in you. The Spirit should be saying, I am sitting. I am soaking. And what God wants me to be doing is serving. Sacrificing for His glory. Let Him stir up in you whatever He's put in there. God has given you what you need to serve Him. Let Him stir it. Don't quench what He's doing. He goes on in the same passage of Scripture and says, which is in you through the laying on of My hands. He says, Timothy, you were called. We anointed you. We prayed over you. We sent you out. Just like what we did this morning for these young men and women. All we did was pray, God, stir up in them what You've already put in them. We have got some wonderful young men and women in our youth group. We have a couple, Brian and Stacy, who serve and serve and serve and will take nothing for it. And I'm telling you, people like Jamie, people that like the Hendersons, people like Selena, people like Melissa, people uh, like Peyton and all the all of the other ones, you ought to thank them. You ought to realize that God is working through them and, and using them and Don't be nice to me because it bothers me, but be extremely nice to them. Why? Because God has given them something. And friends, that should be the same for you. It ought to be the normal for someone to be able to come up to you and say, you know what, God is just at work in you. Thank you so much for serving in the nursery. Thank you so much for working in the kitchen. Thank you so much for working in Ignite. Why? Because whatever God has given you should be stirring Stop quenching the Spirit in your life and say, God, use me. 
God, I have a purpose. I was created. I am not a mistake. I am not an accident. He goes on in the same passage of Scripture. And then he says, now that I've told you who you are, I've told you what you should be doing. This is what you're going to need. And I'm going to be done, I promise. Just bear with me for a few more moments. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Romans 8 verse 15, Paul says, For you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now this verse is used for everything in the world. Right? You want to accomplish some big feat in sports? Don't be afraid. Right? You want to accomplish something in business? Don't be afraid. But what Paul is saying, actually, is you better be serving God. And don't let Satan convince you that you can't. It's not about earthly success. It's not about winning a race. It's not about, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me by winning a championship. No, what Paul is saying is, you better get over whatever fear you've got and you better get to work for the Lord. Because that's all that's going to matter. Stop making excuses. Stop letting Satan lie to you. I'm not educated enough. I'm not talented enough. I have too much of a history. I've got this. No, Paul says, no! God didn't give you that spirit of fear. God saved you. He loves you. He's equipped you. Let Him work. But of power. Not only does He tell you what you don't have, He says what you do have. Power. You say, Jake, what does that mean? The only power you have is what God gives you through the Holy Spirit. But the Bible says that with God, nothing is impossible. You say, Jake, I I could never teach a Sunday school class. Look up here. If God has put it in you, there ain't nothing stopping you but your sin. You say, Jake, I'd I'd love to go on a mission trip, but I just can't do it. Look up here. The only thing keeping you if God has put that in you is your sin. You say, Jake, do you really believe that fear is a sin? I do. For him to know who to do good and not do it, it is sin. Now, I'm not saying you can't take seasons of rest. I'm not saying that you shouldn't take time to, to, to fast and pray and to be reinvigorated by the Lord. I get it. I get it. Most days I feel like a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest. I understand. But friends, but of power and of love. He says, you better not be throwing down the power without loving people. It's like a bull in a china shop. No, you have to love and use the power that God gives you. And finally, of a sound mind. That means self-control. That means, friends, you can have the power of God, the love of God, and forget that you're supposed to be meek. And meekness means strength under control. Whose control? The Lord's. The Lord's. Tonight I want you to know the only thing I believe that keeps God from doing greater and bigger things in a local church is the restrictions we put on Him. You say, I disagree with that, Jake. Well, then why does it say do not quench the Spirit? Don't grieve the Spirit. Don't hinder the Spirit. The Bible tells us that sin in the life of a believer hinders our prayers. The list goes on and on and on because what brings God glory? A church that's faithful to Him. A church that is sharing the gospel, watching people saved, watching lives being changed. You say, well, Jake, I think it is when we have a, we have a good sermon. 
If you think that's all that honors God, you've listened to enough of them to know that that ain't the answer. You say, Jake, if we could just have a full choir, that's not the answer. It is whatever God has given you, whether you think it is small or great, big or insignificant, whatever it is that God has put in you and stirred up in you, it's when you will just say, yes, here I am, Lord. Whatever it is, I'm not going to fear. I'm not going to doubt. I'm not going to make excuses. God, I know that you have big things in store for me. You say, Jake, how important is this for us? Paul thought it was the most important thing he could tell Timothy before he went to heaven. And I think the same is true for us. Father, I thank you so much for your word tonight. Lord, I know I haven't done it justice. I know that I stutter and I stammer. And Lord, I know that I can get sidetracked. But God, tonight I know that you love this group of people because you've worked through them for so long. Lord, tonight let us not be satisfied with the victories that we've seen, but excited for the victories to come. Lord, tonight I pray that you would help us be unsatisfied with the normal and step out believing the power and mercy that you can show us. Father, I pray that tonight you are dealing with hearts. Lord, for anyone that's here that's lost tonight, that they would be saved. For anyone that's here tonight, Lord, that's drifted from their first love, that you would draw them back to you, God, because you're the only one that can stir. You're the only one that can convict. You're the only one that can give the increase, Lord. We humbly fall before you. But Lord, I know you can tonight. I'm praying that you will. Father, thank you for this group of men and women. And I hope, Lord, that they know how much I love them, but especially, Lord, how much you love them. I ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.